0: walking with Jesus in his final week. Let me just read a portion of this chapter for us. As they're eating the Passover meal, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Dropping down to verse 66. Peter was below in the courtyard while well, Jesus has been arrested. He's under his first trial. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seen Peter warming himself. She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And when he went out into the gateway, the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, because you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down. And wept. This is God's word to us, and you may be seated. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are walking with our Savior through the final uh, 24 or more hours of his earthly life before his crucifixion. This is an account of. Jesus' um, final events before he was crucified that is dominated by the themes of sacrifice and betrayal and abandonment. Those are really kind of the three threads that sort of weave this 14th chapter of Mark's gospel together. To be abandoned, that's what our Savior faced. And actually, to be abandoned is one of the most terrifying, concerning, um, fearful things for most people if we're honest about it the idea of of being abandoned being forgotten about left aside left alone with no hope that anybody's going to come back for you that conjures up sort of childhood childlike fears for most of us Uh, i was poignantly reminded of this uh, this week when i was reading the foreword to a new book the foreword was written by johnny erickson tata Many of you know Johnny's story. As a teenage girl, she had a diving accident, dove into shallow water, hit the bottom, broke her neck, and was paralyzed from the neck down, and has had to live a long life. She's, I think, in her 60s now, uh, as a quadriplegic. Here's one of the things that she recounted from that story. She said in this foreword of this book, I know hospitals. I wish I didn't, but... Over the years, I've become all too acquainted with their stale corridors and their freezing cold operating rooms. It started back in 1967 when a reckless dive into shallow water snapped my neck, leaving me a quadriplegic. And when they rushed me to the hospital on that hot July afternoon in 1967, I had no idea that I wouldn't be discharged until April of 1969. She recounts this story. She says, one morning... I was lying on a gurney in the hallway outside the urology clinic. After two hours of waiting and counting ceiling tiles, remember she can't move, a lab worker came through the doors to announce that I would be the first person taken after their lunch break. I moaned. She said my shoulders were already hurting from lying flat for so long without movement. And as the urology staff headed off to the cafeteria, my heart sank. More to the point, she says, I nearly choked in a flood of fear and claustrophobia. Left out in a hallway for a couple of hours, hardly thought about, and then remembered just long enough to be told, we're going to leave you alone for a while longer, because we've got to go to lunch. And she's there, and she's helpless, and she can do nothing but sit there feeling Abandoned. Being abandoned is a horror. We we fear it. And we all ultimately yearn to rest in the kind of love that will never leave us. To find a friend or a spouse or children or relationships with someone that will just never go away. We need to have the hope that there will always be some connection. We will never be totally cast aside by everyone. Well, as Mark chapter 14 chronicles these events in the final day or so, a little longer, of Jesus' life, before his crucifixion, up to the late night or really early morning hours in his first trial, which was before the Jewish Sanhedrin, sort of a religious court, it runs on these these three themes, sacrifice, betrayal, and abandonment. Now, this is a very long chapter. Uh, there's quite a lot in it. It's, it's sort of a, a, a driven narrative. And so, rather than walking through each part of it this morning, which we don't have time to do, what we're going to do is focus on the themes that Mark uses to weave this chapter together. Now, just before we do that, let me quickly touch on the chronology of events, just real quick, so that we can kind of get our heads around what happens in this chapter and in what order. And that will help us then in a moment when we look at the themes of the chapter. Very simply, this is what happens. Throughout um, this 14th chapter, Jesus is uh, anointed uh, as he spends his last night in Bethany, the town just outside of Jerusalem, not far away, with expensive perfume. We'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. Um, As the chapter moves on, Judas, one of his 12 disciples, decides finally he's going to sell Jesus out. He formally makes that decision in his heart and his mind, and he goes and he talks to the religious leaders who are after Jesus. Uh, The next part, Jesus sends his disciples ahead into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover meal. That, too, is significant. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then they go into Jerusalem. They eat that Passover meal. And Jesus there tells his disciples, as we just read, that one of them is going to betray him, and all of them are going to abandon him. And they're shocked at that, and they protest after dinner, Jesus and his disciples head out to Gethsemane. That's, uh, it was a garden area, as you will, some trees down there in the bottom of, the, valley of um, the Kidron Valley, just outside the walls of Jerusalem at the foot of the Mount of Olives. They go down there. It's late at night in the early hours of the morning, and he goes with his men to pray. And, of course, the chapter then culminates with Jesus' arrest. Judas does lead the religious leaders and the temple police. Down to Gethsemane, knowing where Jesus had been going, uh, they arrest him. The disciples do scatter, despite their earlier protestations, just like Jesus said they would. He is arrested and he is tried before the Jewish court. That's the events of the chapter. But each one of these events is selected by the author, Mark, for a reason. He's weaving them together to paint a picture for us of what kind of suffering our Savior went through for us. And those three themes that are weaved together are sacrifice, that Jesus' death is going to be a sacrificial one. He's dying for other people, namely us. He's dying for our benefit. So sacrifice is the first theme. Second theme is the theme of betrayal. Those who were closest to and should have been closest to him are the very ones who stab him in the back. And thirdly and finally, the theme of abandonment. Those who do not outright betray him, nonetheless leave him on his own. And we see this throughout the narrative. We'll touch briefly on each one, and then we'll kind of pull these, these three threads apart. They're sort of woven like the three strands of a rope. We're going to pull them apart and look at each one of them, and then toward the end we'll tie them all back up together to see what this chapter is telling us about our Savior. First is this idea of sacrifice. Uh, It begins in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 14 with Jesus being anointed. Uh, You recall, if you've been with us so far, throughout this series in Mark's Gospel, he's actually staying in Bethany, a village a couple miles away from Jerusalem, in someone's house. And a woman comes there, she uh, pours this perfume, this very expensive perfume, all over his head, an anointing with oil. Uh, Sounds like a weird thing to us. It was customary for them back in that day. And there are some who say, gosh, why did she do that? That was so expensive. That could have been sold and given to the poor. She just, quote, unquote, wasted it on Jesus. What's so significant is what he says about it and how he interprets the actions. Uh, Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand, he says, for burial. For burial. That's how Jesus interprets this action. Now, it was customary back in that day and in that culture to uh, wrap up a corpse when somebody had died, to wrap up their body and then anoint it with various spices that smelled good as a way to honor the dead person, sort of counteract some of the stench of, of decay and so forth before the person would be then buried. And yet Jesus says, she has anointed my body for burial, but he's still alive, which was kind of a weird thing to say. But it's an ominous sign that he knows his death is imminent. It is coming very, very soon. This is going to be a sacrificial death. We see the same theme move on as he sends the disciples into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover meal. Passover was a significant Jewish holiday, and so he sends them into town and he says, go prepare the Passover meal in this this upper room of somebody's house where they had their final meal together. Now Passover was significant because in the, the Jewish context that was the commemoration of how God had passed over the houses of the Israelites in ancient Egypt because each one of the Israelites when God said I'm going to send my angel in to destroy and to kill people as judgment he said the way you make sure that they don't, the angel doesn't kill you is you sacrifice an animal and then you place some of the blood of the dead animal over the doorpost of your house. And that was the signal by which God's people would avoid being condemned to death by God. God was setting up a system whereby blood sacrifice is what avoids death. You see, that was the symbolism of the Jewish Passover. The sacrifice of blood, an animal in that case, is what avoided death. God's judgment passed over those who had the blood of the sacrificial animal on their house. And the imagery is all there. It's all there. It's built in, the imagery that explains Jesus' ministry. Death is averted because of blood that came from a substitutionary sacrifice. He's saying, this is what my death is going to be. I'm not just going to die. I'm going to die for a reason. My blood will be shed, and because my blood is shed, you will avert God's judgment and eternal death in hell. And lastly, we see the sacrifice theme, as Mark talks about during the meal, where Jesus initially institutes communion. He establishes what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I won't eat again or drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He says, do this in remembrance of me. My body is broken for you. My blood is shed for you. This is all a sacrifice. I'm going to die for the good of others. The point is simply this, Jesus is about to endure excruciating suffering that will culminate in his death, but that death will open up a way for all of us to relate to God like never before. That's the first theme that Mark is weaving through this account of the final day of Jesus' life. And that blends right in with this next theme, this theme of betrayal. Jesus is betrayed by those closest to him. Part of that betrayal is obvious with Judas. But there's another aspect of betrayal here with the religious leaders who are after Jesus themselves. In fact, the chapter starts in verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They were looking for a way to arrest Jesus, but not in broad daylight because all the crowds loved him. And so they were looking for some stealthy way to corner him and get him in their hands where they could literally kill him. And this is the pinnacle of betrayal when you think about this. After all, these are the Jewish religious leaders we're talking about. In the Old Testament era, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. So their leaders were supposed to be the leaders of God's own people. And so here, God, in human flesh, comes to his own people, and his own people turn on him with a bloodthirsty and murderous zeal. That's how they respond to him. If you're like me, and if you've been around church, and you've been around the gospel story and the Easter story for some time, we sort of get used to this idea that, that Jesus and the religious leaders of his day were adversaries, Right? I mean, we're just sort of accustomed to that, but that's not the way it was meant to be. These were God's people, and they are not only rejecting God, they are bloodthirsty. It's an abject betrayal. Well, they're looking for a way to arrest him by stealth, and of course, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, gives them that opportunity. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, as a matter of simple logistics, if they're going to not arrest Jesus when he's in public, they have to find him at a time when hardly anybody knows where he is, and that, of course, is problematic for them, because Jesus wasn't live-tweeting his location all the time on his smartphone. So they needed somebody who knew where he was to turn him in. Well, Judas gives them that opportunity, so they're thrilled. They're like, great, we'll pay you off. You tell us where he is when he's in a vulnerable place. Judas says, I'll do it. One of his own disciples. Remember, these are guys who had already pledged to leave everything behind to follow him as Savior and Lord. Judas was one of those guys. He meant it when he said it. But here he is three or so years later, and he's stabbing Jesus in the back. Many of us have had the experience of maybe a trusted coworker, or a good friend, perhaps a spouse or somebody else who was really close to us that we were kind of vulnerable with. Like, you know, we we let our guard down a little bit. We let them in to our world, we would say. We trusted them with some information that was sort of sensitive and vulnerable about us because we we thought we could trust them. And then they betray us by spreading that information. To somebody else or by failing to keep their promises to us. It is bitterly painful when somebody that you've let in stabs you in the back. That's what Jesus is experiencing here. And what's more, he's aware of it. He's aware of it. Uh, during the dinner, verses uh, 17 on down, um, as they were reclining at the table, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. He's making it clear. You guys in this room, my 12 closest guys, there's nobody else here. And one of you guys is going to turn me in. Betrayal is painful, but Jesus was not ignorant of it. He wasn't caught off guard by it. He was fully aware of this the whole time that it was going on. He was not spared any of the pain of his ordeal via ignorance. He just didn't know it was happening. You see, Jesus has not started to suffer physically yet. That's coming very soon. But nobody's hit him, nobody's whipped him, and nobody's crucified him yet. But Jesus' suffering has already begun because he's being betrayed and he knows it and he is feeling the full brunt of that. With a broken heart, he tells his guys, one of you are going to turn me in. Of course, Judas does that when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, down in verse 43. Judas uh, Immediately, while they were still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These are the temple police, as it were. And the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one that I kiss is the man, sees him, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. What's happening at this point is that, as we've said before, there were likely many, many people camped outside the city because all these people had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. They didn't always live there, and there wasn't always room inside the city for everybody. And so they would camp, sometimes even outside the city walls. And, and here they are down at the bottom of the Kidron Valley, just outside the city walls. It's nighttime, they're down in a valley, and they're under trees, right? There's trees everywhere. So it would have been awfully dark, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of camping out in the wilderness when you finally turn off all the lights and the lanterns and the flashlights and the darkness is so thick you can't even see like a foot in front of your face. It's probably what was going on here. The Jerusalem streetlight committee hadn't set everything up there in the city. So you've got all this darkness and you've got hundreds or maybe even thousands of people all huddled up in blankets and camped all around the city. How in the world are these people going to find Jesus? Well, Judas knows where he's going to be, so he leads them right to the one spot. He gave them the opportunity they needed. And finally, the leaders themselves betrayed Jesus. We talked about this a moment ago. Verses 53 all the way down to 65 record Jesus' first trial, as it were, in front of the Sanhedrin, this Jewish court. Verse um, 56 says, Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So they've ginned up all this false testimony to try to just accuse Jesus of something so they can kill him. And Jesus says nothing. He lets all the lies implode upon themselves because it's very, very difficult to lie consistently. And so they're frustrated because they can't get any of these people that they've bought off to say the right things in the right way. Jesus says nothing until he is asked outright if he is the Messiah. Verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst of them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He remained silent and made no answer. But again the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus once again alludes to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, which we saw him do last Sunday. The Son of Man coming into the throne room of heaven with clouds and power. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, these guys knew their Old Testaments too. They knew exactly what he meant. He was claiming to be the Son of God. So the high priest tore his garment. That was the sign in that day of, of blasphemy. This guy's claiming to be God, and we are saying that he is not. And so the court convicts Jesus of blaspheming God's name by claiming to be God. Now, here's the crazy aspect of this whole thing. God's people condemn God to die for claiming to be God. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. But that's precisely what happened. Because such is the power of of sin and how powerfully it warps our view of reality. Jesus is betrayed by his people and his own disciples. And finally, this theme of abandonment runs through the whole narrative account. The rest of the 12 disciples are going to abandon Jesus. They don't all betray him. Only Judas really actively turned him over to his enemies. The other 11 disciples didn't do that, but they did abandon him. Back in verse 26 that we read uh, earlier in the service, Jesus says, you will all, when he gets out to the Mount of Olives, you will all fall away. And they they strongly protest against this idea. No, we won't. But he says, yeah, you will. His closest companions are going to leave him alone, kind of twisting in the wind, as it were, in his moment of greatest crisis. And despite their vehement protestations that we read about earlier, that's exactly what they do. If you jump down to verse 22, Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. And he's asking them simply to stay awake. And they keep falling asleep on him because, you know, it's late at night and they're tired. and, And yeah, you know, they love Jesus and all, but they're thinking about other stuff too. So typical. And so when he needs them the most, they're constantly conking out on him. You see, when they were vehemently protesting, no, Jesus, we will stay loyal to you, like in that moment, they meant what they were saying. But it didn't actually turn out that way, did it? They keep falling asleep over and over again. And finally, when he is betrayed, they scatter. They scatter. Verse 50. They all after he's now being arrested and led off, verse 50 says they all left him and they fled for their lives. Just a couple hours earlier, they're like, to death, man, we're with you, Jesus. Oh, now the real threat comes and we scatter like cockroaches when the lights go on. You see, sometimes sincerely believing something or sincerely meaning something at the time I say it doesn't necessarily make it true, does it? Many people make commitments that they mean at the time that they make it. I'll pay it all back. Just this once, if you can spot me, I'll pay it all back. And like at the time I say that, I really mean it. Of course, it doesn't always happen, does it? Or for many of us, we march down the aisle on that beautiful wedding day, and we say, till death do us part. And like when I say that on that day, I mean it. But we all know the statistics. Many times it doesn't actually come uh, pan out that way. Or like the disciples... I will follow Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. And I mean it when I say that. But time and time again, we, we find that what we thought we meant when we said it really turns out not to be true at all. Because other issues come up, pressures come on, and suddenly something I thought I meant real strongly, now I'm thinking about it in totally different terms. That was Peter's story. That was Peter's story. This, this chapter ends focusing on Peter because he so embodies what the rest of the disciples experienced and what the Bible is trying to get us to see as Jesus' followers even today. As we read earlier, he does indeed, after saying, Jesus, I would never even deny you once. I will lay down my life. I will die if I have to before I deny you even one time. And just a short handful of hours later, in the face of pressure, three times in a row, he says, I do not know the guy. The third time, he is so emphatic. Uh, Verse 71, he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear. He's literally saying, like, if I'm lying to you, may I be struck dead in this moment. I do not know the guy. Like, you you can't deny it more strongly than that. And, you know, the contrast between the the emphatic nature with which Peter denied Jesus at the end of the chapter and the emphatic nature with which he swore to stand by Jesus earlier in the chapter, that contrast is very deliberate. You see what Mark is saying to us? Look how much Peter meant it at the time. But when the chips were down, look what he really did. You see, this, this points to our real problem. I mean, we started this morning by identifying a problem. We are all mortally afraid of being abandoned. That's just a human nature thing. Whether we're thinking about it a lot or not, probably we're all mortally afraid of being abandoned, of being neglected, of being left aside. But you know what is as, as powerfully felt as that fear may be even that is just but a symptom of a deeper problem the real root problem the real problem is not that i might be abandoned the real problem is that when i look deep down inside my own heart i see the makings of a traitor That's my problem. My biggest problem is not that I might be abandoned by others, it's that I, in my heart, am an abandoner. I have limits. No matter how sincerely I mean I'll be with you, I know deep down inside I've got limits beyond which I just cannot press on anymore. The real problem is not that someone might betray me, the real problem is that I am a traitor just like everyone else. And that's why we live in a world where the fear of abandonment is so strong for so many people. Because we know that everyone is a deserter at heart. We know that in our hearts, we are hardwired to listen to me first and foremost. That's just built into the wiring, as it were, of the human heart. We're hardwired, as it were, to follow our own impulses, to chase our own comfort, even if that means ignoring the consequences of my actions on others, or even if it means breaking a previously made promise. And everyone is like that. And deep down inside, we know it. Everyone is like that, including me. You know, we see this all the time. I expect my employer to stay loyal to me and faithful to me, to keep me in my position and keep my paychecks coming, as long as I'm, you know, minimally performing uh, the duties of my job. My employer, even if another, like, employee comes along six months later after I'm hired, and they're way more talented than me, and they're available, if my employer were to fire me and hire that guy, man, I'd take him to court. I'd sue him. You can't do that to me. But... I want the freedom to quit at a moment's notice and take a better job if it comes along. Leave the old employer in the dust and take the new one. I don't see any problem with that at all. I want loyalty from them, but I'm not really prepared to give it back. We think this way about our churches too. I expect my church to provide good, solid biblical teaching. because That's what churches are supposed to do, which it is. And I expect the people in that church to make me feel welcome, to embrace me, to embrace my family, to make space in their world to welcome us in because that's what churches are supposed to be, and they are. But I want the freedom to pull up stakes and move out of town at the first opportunity and just leave the church or try the church down the street if you know, I just decide that that might be a better fit for my schedule or my time. I want loyalty from, but I'm not really willing to give loyalty to. And it's part of this thinking that sometimes makes people not formally join churches, not make a, a commitment to this local body of members because I want to hedge my bets. What if I want to leave? Or not sign up for a long-term volunteer commitments. Join a community life group every, every week? You meet for two hours every week for like the whole school year? Man, that's a long time. I'm not sure I want to be t- tied down. I got plans. I, got, I need to be able to take off whenever I want to. But I want you to be there for me. It's in our hearts. And I see it in my heart. I mean, I, I, my wife and I have been married for 21 years. And I'll say right out <laughs> I want, desire, and, and even expect lifelong loyalty from my wife. That's what she pledged to me on our wedding day. And I pledged it to her. But if I'm brutally honest with myself, which is hard to do. I know the parts of my heart that are tempted. They're tempted by work. They're tempted by personal ambitions and things I want to achieve for myself. They're tempted by other women. They're tempted by other people. My heart is tempted in dozens of ways to be less than faithful to my wife. I know I'm meant for better or worse on my wedding day. But you know what? Today is one of those for worse days. Like it's not being married right now is not helping me. It's just another set of demands and I can come home and I just don't have what it takes to give my spouse what she needs right now. And I am super quick with the list of excuses. Oh, if you only knew what I'm dealing with. And if you knew what I was dealing with, if you knew what I was carrying, you would totally understand. And let's like just... What am I doing? We all know what I'm doing. I'm rationalizing, right? I'm justifying something I know to be wrong. I promise to be there for you and better or worse, and right now it's worse, and I just won't have it within me to be there for you. And you know what? That's not her problem. That's my problem. It's a heart problem. You see, my problem is that I am that guy at heart. You know, that story I, I told you, a true story, told you from Johnny Erickson Tata at the beginning, being left out in the hallway, the hospital hallway. I don't know how you reacted to that story. When I react to it, I immediately identify with her, right? With, with what it must have been like to... to that be as vulnerable as she felt and to be in pain and not even be able to move or do anything about it to be so dependent on people and then be forgotten by the people that are supposed to be caring for her and I'd like to believe that if I were in that story and I was one of those urology clinic workers I would have seen this teenage girl who's paralyzed and I would have realized she's been laying here for who knows how long and somebody's got to take care of her But you know, the sick truth is, I can relate to those workers. I can relate to them. They were probably hungry. It was lunchtime. They were probably tired. Healthcare workers often work long shifts, they're on their feet. It's a hard job, often a thankless one. They probably had a legal and perhaps even union backed right to take a break at that point in the day and go get some lunch. They were entitled. And I get it. I get it. I get that mindset. I probably wouldn't have thought of that teenage girl who could no longer ever go to lunch on her own again either. And I probably would have abandoned her too because my stomach was calling. Oh, friends, I don't want to be abandoned, but when I look in my heart, I see a deserter. who I am this is my real problem I can't be for others the very thing I so desperately need for them need them to be for me so what's the answer what's the answer we all fear abandonment because we all know that we're all abandoners and deserters at heart so what's the answer don't be a traitor is that the exhortation today Don't be a traitor. Don't be that guy. Be more sensitive. Be more true to your word. Don't abandon other people. You know, kind of one of these karma deals? Send the good waves out there and maybe they'll come back to you. What goes around comes around. If you stop abandoning, maybe people won't abandon you. That's the way to live life. Is that what scripture tells us about this problem in our hearts? No. That's what our culture today is likely to tell us. And I understand that line of thinking. But it's not the one in the Bible. The Bible gives us a different hope for this problem. The Bible gives us the gospel. And it starts with understanding that I don't ever have to fear abandonment, at least not from the one who matters most, that being God himself. And the reason I don't have to fear ultimate betrayal or abandonment is because of what we just read in Mark 14. Because Jesus was abandoned, and Jesus was betrayed, and he was abandoned and betrayed in my place and in your place. Friends, that's part of the gospel. That's part of the gospel. Part of Jesus' substitutionary suffering was not just his physical suffering and being whipped and beaten and nailed to the cross, which we will read about in coming weeks. That was definitely part of it. But that was not all of it. Part of his suffering was even before anybody laid a finger on him. Physically, he was suffering relationally and emotionally. He was suffering abandonment and betrayal from those closest to him. And ultimately, hanging on the cross, he suffered the abandonment from God Almighty himself. He suffered that abandonment so that you and I would not have to. Jesus stayed completely faithful to his calling and completely faithful to his promise in the face of everybody abandoning him. He was the perfect promise keeper that I find I cannot be. He was... The, the perfectly faithful companion that I find I cannot be no matter, no matter how much I, I wish I could be. And so he is the answer. And it starts with me knowing I will never be betrayed by God because God was betrayed for me in my place. That's where it begins. But that's not where it ends. Once the gospel has assured me of my hope, God then begins transforming me. As I meditate on the beauty of Jesus and experience the power of God's spirit in me, he increasingly begins then to make me something that left on my own I could never be. Someone who is loyal, someone who is faithful, Someone who, as the Old Testament would put it, who swears to his own hurt and yet does not change. I said I would be there, and even if it kills me, I will be there. I don't have that in me. But Jesus puts it in me as a Christian. What Jesus is doing in amongst us as a church, those of us who have embraced him as our Savior and Lord, is he is taking a church full of natural deserters, and he is making us faithful loyalists because he is the faithful loyalist. How do we reflect Jesus in this way? A couple of thoughts as we head toward our conclusion, very practically. How do I experience that kind of transformation? Three things. First of all, meditate on his suffering. Actively think about, create space in your time to think about and meditate on his suffering. To meditate just means to think about something over and over and over again. That means don't read Mark chapter 14 once and say, that was a good passage, good sermon, on to the next, I'm busy. It means we reread it and reread it and ponder and think about the awesome suffering that Jesus went through. Because when you start to do that, it begins to only affect your mind, it trickles down and starts affecting your heart. You see the yearning that you have to not be abandoned and you see in Jesus' abandonment that because of it, you never will be abandoned by God the Father. And that begins to break down the heart and engage my heart in who Jesus is. When we ponder and meditate and preach the gospel of Jesus, abandonment and yet perfect obedience to yourself over and over again, it begins to change us. Secondly, meditate on suffering. Secondly, confess and repent of your sins. We all have them. I have my faithlessness. You have yours. Bring it to the cross that's where it belongs. We just we agree with God. I'm a traitor at heart. I'm a deserter at heart. I get it. I admit it. Would you take it? Because that's what he went to the cross for. And if you need to confess your faithlessness to another person, do that too. Do that too. Acknowledge where you've betrayed, where you've abandoned ask for forgiveness, and then acknowledge it to God. That is showing the grace of God in a powerful way. Thirdly and finally, not only meditate on His suffering, confess and repent of your sins, but thirdly and finally, let's yield to His Spirit. Yield to His Spirit. If you are a Christian, and only if you're a Christian, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ and banked on him and his sacrifice for the cleansing of your sins. One of the things that happens at that moment is that God says, my spirit comes to live within you. That means if you are a Christian, God's spirit is already there trying to reshape your heart. It's like the current of a river. He's already at work. Now the only question is, are you going to row against the tide or are you going to let the tide take you? God's spirit is already at work in my life and in your life, if you're a Christian, to make us less of the traitorous deserters we are, and more of the faithful lovers that Jesus was. So pray that his perfect heart of obedience will increasingly and supernaturally be made manifest in you. And that he, through his mercy and power, would manifest resources for faithfulness. Faithfulness to your word, faithfulness to your promises, faithfulness to other people, and faithfulness to God. Resources that you and I don't naturally possess on our own. Pray that he would bring those about because that's what he's at work doing. We want to transition right now and experience the Lord's Supper together as a church, to experience communion together. And I hope that as we do this, we'll be able to do it in a fresh and new way. Jesus, at the beginning of this chapter, instituted communion he he knew what was coming the abandonment the betrayal ultimately the suffering physically and the sacrifice and the death and he said take this eat it and drink it together church in memory of me and the reason that we take it into our bodies in the act of eating and drinking it is the way that we personally connect with the suffering of our Savior in a powerful way. We're saying his suffering, a broken body and shed blood, pictured by the cup and the bread, his suffering taken into me nourishes my life and my soul. So the ushers come forward with the bread now.